This is Wayne McCullough here with Simple Talk Radio, reporting in from Dallas, Texas. As you remember, if you've listened to us and um, followed the podcast, and we appreciate you that have, is that we want to educate you, and the main goal is to focus on the big five with our faith, family, friends, fitness, and finances. And that's in, in no particular order for me besides really the first three, faith, family, and friends, come first. Now, I always say if you don't get all of those aligned, then you you ultimately have a problem in one area. So if you don't at least attempt to stay in shape or take care of your body or your nutrition or your diet, then you will suffer in other areas. And I would say one more than any is finances. And I, my sister and I have spoken about this. If you are in financial trouble or your house is in a financial mess, that is extreme stress. So we will oftentimes have people that will talk about all. Today we are going to go heavy on the finance side. I do have a guest today. His name is Larry Riddell. Larry is a, is a close friend, an investor, an astute investor. And we are partners in several ways. One, in, in full disclosure to the audience, I do invest in his um, strategy. So I want to put that out up there front because I'm a big believer. So we're going to jump right into it. I don't think Larry's done a bunch of podcasting, so he was nice enough to come on and let me record him. So, Larry, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Wayne. We're very excited. Um, Larry has sat on several panels that I've hosted. My, my company often hosts panels. We put diverse investors and people from diverse industries on the panel, and then we have them moderated, and Larry has been one of the most well-received. Part of that because he speaks the truth. He speaks eloquently and intelligently and is witty when he wants to be. So what, what I'd appreciate is, is just give us some of your background, be it personal life, and then you know, what, where you started in the financial services. And, and I will say this, Larry and I have a similar path, and we both grew up in what we would call in our business the Wall Street Channel or the bulge bracket firms, and then have both gone our own independent way um, to independent firm or even more of an entrepreneurial route. So the floor is yours. Well, thank you, Wayne. And again, uh, appreciate you having me. Um, yeah, so just starting, uh, kicking things off just a bit about my background. Uh, I went to high school here in Dallas at uh, Dallas Jesuit, which I'm still uh, uh, proud to be involved with. Uh, prior to that, we're from Chicago, Wisconsin, so I'm not a native Texan, but my wife and kids are. And I guess uh, thinking back to the mid-'80s, I read a book uh, called Liar's Poker by uh, Michael Lewis. Yes. (laughs) And uh, it had an unintended consequence uh, for Michael Lewis where he was talking about his experience at Solomon Brothers as really an indictment of of Wall Street. Mm -hmm. And it actually uh, was kind of something intriguing that, that... kind of spurred my fascination with Wall Street. And I'm not alone in that. A lot of folks that read that book, Michael Lewis will tell you now, uh, were actually drawn to it. Uh, And and, and of those that don't know Michael Lewis, first of all, we'll put it in the show notes, he's a legendary writer that that goes across many spectrums. He he wrote Moneyball, he wrote The Blind Side. The Blind Side, yeah. I I think this was his very first book. Right, put him on the map. It was his experience. Right. Um, He got a, became a bond salesman at Solomon and the times were fraternity-like. Uh, so I, I don't, it, it's more of a mea culpa than it is something I'm yeah. necessarily proud of. But but uh, as I've followed your podcast, every it seems like your other guests go through an evolution. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a good starting place because it's, it's so extreme. And uh, so, uh, you know, but the things that were drawing me to, to Wall Street weren't that virtuous. It looked like a lot of fun. I was 18 years old. I'm reading this book thinking, boy, these guys make a lot of money up in New York. They have a great time. I need to see what that's about. Uh, went to UT, uh, studied finance, uh, and got some accounting in there. And and uh, but uh, at, at graduation, I really wasn't able uh, to 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 get to New York. Although I, I tried, maybe not enough. I had some friends who just frankly just moved up there, and uh, were able to get the job. So I went I went back to business school uh, after a few years in Houston, and was uh, fortunate enough to get a job uh, with Goldman Sachs in private wealth, uh, which was interesting back in those days because we were the, yes, we were building the relationships, and I know you were with 
uh, I think Deutsche Bank, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, back then I may have been with A.G. Edwards. That's where I started. A.G. But, Edwards? Yeah. Okay. And, but I, I think um, the world has evolved just in general where back in kind of mid-'90s, uh, we were the guys putting together the portfolios for the most part. Mm-hmm. We might pick mutual funds here or there, but we were buying the bonds and, and buying the underlying equities many times. So the Goldman program... Um, at the time was actually about an eight-month program in New York before we were sent to our respective offices, which mine was here in Dallas. And yeah, we were, we were learning about how to kind of build relationships with high net wealth individuals, but we were also learning how to invest, at least uh, back then the way Wall Street wanted us to mm-hmm. invest. And uh, I, should, I should asterisk this or pause because you're giving me a lot of credit. Uh, that maybe is a little misplaced. Um, right now, uh, I'm a co-owner of a firm, St. James Investment mm-hmm. Company. My business partner, Robert Mark, uh, he is, in fact, the portfolio manager, and he's the founder of St. James. We met uh, in that training program at Goldman, and, uh, and a little bit of his background is important to uh, the narrative he was a West Pointer and uh, very much thought he might be a career military man or, or might uh, become an engineer. He was an engineer, and, but then became a tank commander. But uh, sitting in Germany and then the desert of Iraq, he read and reread The Intelligent Investor. And it made just a, a lot of sense to him. Written by Benjamin Graham, and, Written by Benjamin Graham. Right. And, 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 you know, a lot of folks hear the name of the book, they don't realize uh, Benjamin Graham was kind of interesting. Benjamin Graham uh, was caught up in the mania of the 20s stock market like a lot of others. And like a lot of others, he lost, if not all, most of his money when the market came crashing down. And back then, leverage was not only pervasive, it was almost obscene. Hmm. And so he went back and kind of did a little bit of self-examination and uh, came up with the intelligent investor, which eventually, and I I don't think I have this wrong, he became uh, Warren Buffett's professor at Columbia. But if you read the book, The Intelligent Investor, it's interesting because the only math in that book is addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. It's very straightforward, um, and in many ways, it's it's somewhat common sense. kind of hinges on this idea of, look, buy an asset. When you, when you buy an asset, um, pay less than what it's worth, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and you'll do fine. And if you pay more than what it's worth, you're, you might get yourself in trouble. And as you know, when you and I have spoken on panels, uh, this is in stark contrast to what I learned in undergrad finance, my MBA, even at Goldman, uh, they, they those institutionally and academically, and and I dare say uh, the policymakers in our government, but I won't mm. go there yet, but they tend to subscribe to more of a, well, uh, modern portfolio theory. Uh, there's a lot of elegant math uh, involved. Um, certainly calculus is maybe a necessary ingredient. And uh, if you kind of, and, and, and so for academics, it's beautiful, right? You, you kind of put all these building blocks together and you look at the price action of stocks, for instance, and you kind of prove out using historical data how things are going to progress. So it's, it's actually a very different school of thought than what Benjamin Graham laid out. And uh, it gets widespread adoption and it always kind of breaks down. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the notable examples of that uh, would be long-term capital management. John Merriweather, they had 50 PhDs. They were leveraging up because they were. this was built on the foundations of modern portfolio theory, and it all broke down and almost caused a, a global financial calamity. So thank you for letting me do the asterisk in kind of this lineage. Uh, but uh, point being... Robert Mark, who I trained with after a few years at Goldman, uh, kind of synthesized uh, what he read and 
from Benjamin Graham's book and others who kind of follow that thinking and then contrasted it to what we were practicing at Goldman and what the academics were espousing and said, this doesn't make any sense. So in 1999, a few years after joining Goldman, he, he quit uh, Goldman, said, I'm going to start a, a money management business. And I'm going to do this. Uh, he actually came home. This is hard for me to imagine, but he came home and kind of told his wife, hey, guess what? I just quit. And uh, <laughs> you can say what you want about maybe that's not the right way to handle it. But it was uh, a sign of his conviction. And uh, he basically said, I want to manage money, kind of my interpretation of the way Benjamin Graham laid things out. And we might live in a cave for a while, but this is what I want to do. And the reason we're called St. James to this day is he, at the time, was 32 years old, had no track record. So Mm -hmm. the only people who would give him money were friends and family from his town of St. James, which is a little town in Long Island. Uh, You've seen our logo, Wayne. Mm -hmm. The most interesting thing on it is a train station, which is why I've never visited there. But, but his football coach gave us money, some of his old teachers, the whole town gave us money. And, and uh, that's a real testament to him and his character. Uh, and, and so he kind of just started building a track record. Uh, now, let, let me interject, just so that yeah. um, listener can follow. Did you leave Goldman at that time? I did not. Him? Okay, I did not. So I, I, I know I'm... I'm giving you kind of parallel yeah. uh, but lineage, but I think that it's important to understand the foundation mm-hmm. of St. James because uh, that's exactly where I was going, and thank you. I'm still at Goldman mm-hmm. and actually stayed at Goldman for uh, until the end of 05, so almost 10 years. Uh, built a business uh, with the help of some partners I was very proud of. Um, we... Uh, we, we built some great friendships with our clients. In fact, a few of those clients, uh, without my solicitation, followed me mm-hmm. to St. James, which is always feels good that you're, you're trusted in that regard. And um, I was always, though, I was always somewhat restless. And uh, I, Robert and I maintained our friendship, but I didn't leave uh, explicitly to join St. James. In fact, I had uh, first uh, left... I really wanted to do something on my own, or at least with some partners. Mm-hmm. I left to do a um, kind of a high-end luxury real estate uh, endeavor that's still around today called Cuvée. I'm very proud of it, but the, the partnership wasn't uh, substantive. Uh, and, and, but while that was going on, I was talking more and more to Robert. And Robert was building a terrific track record. Uh, and but really had zero marketing around it. Uh, so we we kind of we, we kind of said, well, let's let's not just let people drop off checks. Let's not be an advisor. Let's try to take what we're doing and build relationships with with advisors across the country that are fragmenting out of fragmenting out of mm-hmm. the warehouses at the time. So. Um, so we got together, and, and the beauty of, I heard Howard Marks, who's someone that we follow very, very carefully, actually heard him on a podcast say this uh, not, not too long ago, and it resonated with me. Oak Tree, is that uh, correct? Uh, Oak Tree. Yeah. And, and, and I would say this, uh, for listeners out there that want to really appreciate value investing, he wrote a book called The Most Important Thing. Mm-hmm. It's really extraordinary. In fact... Uh, as a gift to folks who want to understand value investing. Uh, it's a much cleaner, uh, better read, maybe, than Benjamin Graham's book. And um, it's, it's basically a collection of his memos mm-hmm. over the years. But it's, it's really a terrific read and, and an easy read. So, uh, but I heard Howard Marks, uh, as someone that we follow intently, was talking about partnerships and, and by virtue of being in private wealth and then trying the luxury real estate uh, endeavor that didn't work and now being at St. James, I've had a lot of partners, uh, good and bad, in business. And he said, look, the best partnership is you have shared values and you have uh, different skills. 
or you bring different kind of kind of strengths to the table. And and what we've been able to build, we're very very proud of because um, it's really the foundation is just as I described in our partnership. Robert loves the investing process. He loves reading 10Qs and 10Ks. He loves understanding a business model and what drives return. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly, I'm, I get to involve myself in that, uh, sometimes as a foil. Uh, we, we like to kind of get things on paper, and I'll act often as devil's mm-hmm. advocate, because the way we think about things is we're, we're, we're taking, uh, you know, people are trusting us with their money. And if you think about the legacy of where we came from, the people of St. James trusted us with all their money. So... You know, you can kind of play the Wall Street game, and it's one of relative performance, where in 2008, for example, the market's down 37% in that year alone. It ultimately had a 51% drawdown. But the relative performance game says, well, in 08, the market's down 37%. We were only down 32%. You should feel good about that. And that yeah, becomes okay. – go ahead. Let me sidebar there. We were on some calls back in those days, and, you know, it was very frustrating and, and fearful times. And a manager we used kept saying on this conference call to the investor or advisor like myself, we feel very good. We were down 31%, and the market peaked trough was down 51 and ultimately it was down 37 and we'll continue to stand by our convictions. Two minutes later, he said, we feel very good. I said – there's tons of people on this call. I said, if you say I feel good again, I'm hanging up and we're taking our money out. My clients don't feel good at all no. that we were down 31. Relative performance means nothing to me. And that was my first lesson in that. Hence today, you guys have to, but we, I don't index any of our portfolios. You're right. We're, we're forced to because yeah. the world is, as right. I described, a modern portfolio theory world. Yeah. So sorry for that interjection. No, no. Rel- I, get back on relative well, performance. And, 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 and you and I have lived through – Two bubble collapses, right? right? Um, and I don't mean to be all over the map, but this goes back to some of my cynicism, for lack of a better word, for the way the way maybe the investor crowd of Wall Street might think about things. But to us, and, and look, we're, we're, we're blessed at this point. We have 2,500 accounts. And because we work through advisor partners uh, such as yourself, we don't know uh, the end client oftentimes. But still, we know that money is important to them, mm-hmm. and and we're being trusted with that money. And and so I, I actually put this on our website too. Uh, it's a uh, quote from uh, the manager, First Eagle, I believe. But he said, "Look, I'd rather lose half my clients than half my clients' money." And and to us, what that kind of means is there's going to be some group of advisors and clients that are going to be absolutely focused on relative performance. Mm-hmm. And to your example, if you go down 31%, you got to be up over 50, about 50 to get that money back, right? Um, but w- we're thinking about it because it's our money too, is if you don't, and here's, here's where I don't think enough folks appreciate um, the way m- money works, both investing and debt. The compounding process is exponential. It's not linear. Mm-hmm. And so I always kind of test. Uh, I'm, I get asked to teach a little evening MBA class in California or talks that I have with you or others. I challenge people. I say, look, if I take a penny and mm-hmm. I double it every day for 30 days, wh- what do you have? What do you have at the end of the 30 days? And I get guesses all over the maps. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but the answer is $5.3 million. And it really... By the 10th day, I think we're at five bucks. By the 20th day, I think we're at maybe 50 grand. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's the eighth wonder of the world, right? It, yeah. it, it is, as Einstein said. Yeah. Um, but, and so, you know, you, you think about that. I mean, if you get yourself in debt, I mean, forget about investing. If you get yourself in debt and you think about, I think the top rate of most credit cards can be 25.7%, that exponential. That exponential trap can keep you really mired in a bad situation. You brought it up at the beginning of this podcast. Um, it can cause it can cause a lot of strife and can affect the other areas of your life really, really adversely. Um, 
And the same goes for companies or sovereign governments or whatever. Well, and around. if you want to get into that, I've, as you know, well, I've got plenty to yeah. say on that. But but if you can be a, an investor, and I know at the end you're going to ask me my young self, but I'm going to jump to it. If you mm -hmm. can be an investor and put away a little bit of money, if you can, if you can, um, uh, you know, compound that money, use time to compound that money, and live below your means. To to me, you know, you don't need to hit home runs. You hit singles. And, and that's the that's the basis of our strategy, but it's also very much a mindset right now, because if you don't take the big hit, what money ultimately should give people, I would suggest if things are healthy, it gives you a lot of flexibility, it gives you a lot of freedom, it gives you a lot, you know, you're going to be able to take care of those you love and those you care about. And, and give back and affect change. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it you know... People will do it for e ego. Might might pervert some of that, uh, and and I, there's no judgment there. But ultimately, I think it can be a really really good thing, mm -hmm. even though it might be demonized. And it doesn't it doesn't take as much discipline, I think, as much as a mindset. Yeah, very true. So, so I I feel like I. Uh, I, I don't know if we've gotten gotten off a, a, a direction here. I've, I've given you no, a no, lot no. to work with, it's been so great. I'm happy to happy so to let's wherever. let's get to this point. You're currently at St. James. Everything led you up to here. You have the style in place. You've been operating since '99. Answer this just for for the listener. A, a basic term to you because this can be all over the map is. And so, just so you know, out there, listen, we're talking about investing your money into the broad stock market which is placing your money in publicly traded companies. What, what, is, what, is a true what is the true definition of value to you? And yours might be different, right? Just so they can understand, what is a value investor versus a growth investor? Sure. Well, you and, know. And then there's deep value and there's GARP and with, with all th these. There's things. a lot of categories but, out yeah. there. And, and, and uh, you know what? Or maybe, maybe that's not even fair to call you guys. I, I, I don't. That's what I was about to suggest, yeah. right? I mean, um, Back in, I'll give you an example, back in kind of 2009, 2010, uh, we bought a lot of Microsoft. Now, everyone puts Microsoft in the quote-unquote growth category, mm -hmm. but it was extraordinarily cheap at the time. I mean, if you just looked at its enterprise business, it was doing great. It was brought down not only with the market, but, but Apple was going to rule the world. I mean, it's hard to imagine. Mm. But we would come into meetings and people would tell us how much they hated us owning Microsoft because we were dinosaurs owning it. Um, <laughs> yeah. They don't think about it the same way right now. But, uh, you, you know, people are – when you when you come into value investing, and I know I'm going a little bit on tangent here. No, it's okay. You, you get very attuned to human biases and how they work against you. And I know you've seen the chart where the retail investor – always does worse than all the other i think blackrock puts this out but but the retail investor does does markedly worse than every other asset class and there's there's one reason for it they 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 get fear of missing out so they chase expensive things and then they don't want to buy good companies that are cheap for example so for us they um, make the wrong decision at the wrong time I mean, always that's, always that's always incredible. and it it's always uh, the way we're constructed as humans, feed, fear and greed, mm -hmm. right? I mean, the market goes down, uh, they're going to panic and sell. The market goes up, they feel euphoric, they want to buy more. It's the exact opposite because one of the tenets of value investing, what really our big takeaway, if you give the market a full cycle, and, and this doesn't mean to be a stock market. Real estate mm -hmm. guys know this, oil and gas guys know this. Entry price is what determines return. I'm sure you work with some folks who are in private equity or do private real estate. Of course, yeah. They don't need, they don't have a scorecard day in, day mm -hmm. out like we do in the stock market. Oh, I'm up, I'm up a half a percent, I'm down. And the, the good ones, I would suggest, are smart enough to think long term. They, uh, you know, I, Jerry Jones, he's not a real estate guy, but he bought a bunch of land up in Frisco. Mm -hmm. And he didn't know. He wasn't going to flip that in a year, year and a half. He just knew the, the tollway was moving that direction. And uh, in 20 years, he'd be in great shape. It's funny. I never really thought about this either. I mean, he, he bought the Cowboys for 100, let's just call it $150 million or 125 which seemed crazy at the time. Right. 
He never intended on selling it, yep. and now he's at $5 billion. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, the examples really are rampant. Yeah. And, and you know, it's funny. Uh, one of our – it's a small portfolio position. It's uh, Sam Zell's company, who's yeah. a great real estate investor. <laughs> it's, it's publicly traded. Uh, two-thirds of it's just cash. He's been selling all of his real estate. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and this is how Sam Zell's gone about things his entire life. Um, he thinks in long cycles. Mm-hmm. And uh, if the investor can apply that to the stock market, they can do really, really well or any asset mm-hmm. that they're going to buy. So uh, the, the, what you kind of named are the style boxes that I think Wall Street forces people into. But I think there's a lot of companies that are, quote unquote, growth that we would absolutely buy at the right price. And, and in this environment, uh, what you have to kind of look for, because things are very expensive, uh, is our belief, is you look for opportunities where there's a headwind to it, right? But the business model's sound. So you make this judgment, okay, is, is that headwind, is it cyclical or secular? Mm-hmm. And I'll give you a, a quick example. Um, the, the Amazon Death Star, that's been blowing up retail over the years. Um, it really, the, the, the fear about it in the retail space really hit a, a fevered pitch a couple of years ago. And Bed Bath & Beyond was a clear victim. And we took a hard look at Bed Bath & Beyond and we said, you know, this business model really has changed. Amazon is changing Bed Bath and & Beyond mm-hmm. and, and we can't trust the cash flows that we would like to see out of a company like this. But uh, TJ Maxx, okay, uh, VF Corp, which owns Vans and North Face, they're getting caught down because everyone's in ETFs. They're being caught down in this. Mm-hmm. These companies sell some of their product on Amazon. It's, it, and, and so if, if you're willing to kind of get away from the noise that CNBC puts mm-hmm. out there, as a value investor, you kind of say, okay, you're not looking for a catalyst. Right? You're not saying, I'm going to buy this company because in four months I think the earnings are going to mm-hmm. be good. Saying, this is a sound business or this is a sound asset. I don't know when the market wakes up to value, mm-hmm. but I know I've got a good value and that helps me sleep well at night. Yeah, it's counterintuitive, right? Absolutely. And to some extent, it's, it's the old when there's blood in the streets is the right time to invest. Right? Not that there's blood in the streets, but people don't want to touch a retail stock right now. No, and just like you said, and there's a market under Amazon too that is. I don't know what Target whether that's a good example or not, but my wife's going to Target the rest of her life in some form or fashion. Right. right. I mean, I don't know if Target makes it or not, but there's a sub market there. It's interesting. So that that the whole value investing conversation, this could get kind of fun because it's a name everybody on the planet knows. So just bear with me here because you're talking about value investing, deep value investing. One of the most legendary value investors ever, allegedly, is Warren Buffett. Mm-hmm. And almost every listener knows that name. Has Warren Buffett lost his way? Not the ability to lose to make money, but has he lost his way from what the Berkshire was? If you look at current holdings and investing, um, so I I say this, and you can get hate mail on an, on an. I know it because I say this with uh, 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 a we own Berkshire. Okay. And I can explain why. It's and and for like you a, listening, that is, is Buffett's holding company. It's Buffett's holding it's company. It's a publicly traded holding company. Right. And we are enormous disciples of the Warren Buffett of the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, we see a lot of contradiction mm-hmm. between what he laid out in those letters and his behavior today. Um, I think I've, you know... He was a big buyer of IBM when, for example, shareholder equity was decreasing year over year. It didn't make any sense to us because he used to highlight how important growing shareholder mm-hmm. equity would be. Uh, he certainly has taken a interest not only in politics. Um, he tends to be very critical of precious metals. A few people realize he was one of the largest older holders of silver yeah. in Berkshire. Um, so and now now. He's not necessarily at the helm of the portfolio. I know they own Amazon, which that might work out. I don't know. But the, 
The underlying operating... Well, they're huge holders of, of Apple as well. Correct? Apple. Apple, yeah. yes. Although, maybe that's a consumer that product yeah. company. I, I, look, he, he used to say he'd never touch a tech company. And he ignored what I think in Microsoft, and he's friends with Bill Gates, which is one of the most steady cash flow tech companies out there, mm-hmm. and did, has done some other things, although, again, he's not at the helm. But the operating company he put together is really, really interesting. And the way they kind of hold things at book value. I mean, they bought Bur- – we put this note up. They bought Burlington Northern 2011. They're still holding it at the value they bought it at while other light companies are up fourfold. Mm-hmm. So there's there's value in the structure. Um, we just – we scratch our heads at, at what he's doing. But he's he's elderly now, and I think maybe he's motivated by – by his legacy in some mm. ways more than maybe some of the things he did earlier in his life. Okay, and this is this is a personal question, but a lot of people out there own Berkshire in some form or fashion or another story. You, you, I don't think you can necessarily answer this, but does an investor, should an investor be compelled to or think about selling the stock when Warren Buffett deceases? And Charlie Munger is their apparent, I guess. No, we, we think that's probably a buying opportunity. But Char- how old is Charlie? That Charlie's way. older. I but mean, he's going to run it when if Warren goes away. Yeah, maybe. I mean, the reins are already being that. And that I don't know because I haven't read the, it. The reins are being being handed over, and and yes, given, so you would be given the discipleship of Berk. Look, we own Berkshire in spite of what, what I'm yeah. what I'm saying, and he owns some things we think are far too expensive. We would mm-hmm. never own because the underlying operating company. There's so much value there, right. and it's such a good company. So, yes, I would say buy it, but mm-hmm. it will probably be for sale because the disciples of Warren Buffett followers were... Right, so you're it. thinking you may have an opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah. But but I, I tell you, it it's one of our larger positions now um, already. Right. Okay, so let's let's shift a little bit here and, and talk to the, the, the listener and just the everyday investor. And, you know, it's silly because... And before I got into the game in 1998... I was 28 years old. Investing scares people. Talking about finance scares people because everyone feels stupid. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was an English major at the University of Texas. You can't always tell it by the way I read or write. But <laughs> um, I, I did have a finance background to some extent. But that is a problem out there, right? And, and I would I would put some of this on Wall Street too. Everyone has made it extremely complicated. And I, that's why I love what you guys do. It's not as hard as everybody thinks. I mean, I think you'd agree with me. The average person can start with $10,000 and do something. No right? question. So, and, and should. And so should. In, in that vein, and I'm just kind of putting you on the spot here, what, what, would you, what would you recommend the average person? They could be 25 or, frankly, I get, you know, 52-year-olds that come in and said, I just don't. They don't understand why I'm speaking to them. I said, look, we just need to get educated because I like educated clients. I don't want to just tell them what to do. You know, what would you tell that person? Where do they start? What would they read? I mean, would you – reading Benjamin Graham's book, you know, your eyes will dry up. No doubt. Right? And that's so, why I actually uh, – I mentioned I, I, I mentioned the most important thing by Howard right. Marks. And, in fact, uh, when I talk to some of the uh, MBAs, some of mm-hmm. whom aren't interested in finance, uh, we, we actually have a, a reading list – I tell you what I think is everyone should read that doesn't feel like finance but, mm-hmm. but is, is Nassim Tlaib. Okay. And uh, one of his first books, and, and the re- there's a reason I'm saying all this, Wayne, mm-hmm. is I absolutely love to get young people involved in the yeah, stock market. Yeah, I do market. too, yeah. But what often happens is it looks like a casino to them, and they buy some pot stocks, and, oh, they, yeah. you know, and they, they buy Beyond Meat or whatever. I mean, <laughs> and, and you know, one of the central tenets that, that you, you, you got to pause and think about, but there's a difference between speculating and investing. Big time. Big time. And so most young people become speculators, and then they like to talk about it with their friends, and they're buying, you know, Stocks can prices can be like fishing lures. 
right? They, everyone chases what's moving. Are you familiar with Bitcoin? Yeah. <laughs> oh, good Lord. Yeah. And, and, and you know, it, it becomes fear of missing out. I mean, these things have been going on for, for what we centuries. Call FOMO in my household. No, no doubt. So, you know, my young son who's at college wants to get involved in, in investing, and some of his friends are buying whatever. And, little, and, and I want him to be involved, but I'm making him kind of go through and read some books so he can know this difference between speculating and investing and recognize it because let's remember you and i've both been through two bubble collapses Mm -hmm. and and we may be on the precipice of something interesting as well uh, which we can talk about but if you haven't been through that the the risk is different to a newer investor Mm -hmm. so you want them to to be respectful uh, that this is money and this is risk and you want to be an investor uh, but let me get back. I, I mentioned Nassim Tlaib. Yeah. Really, uh, it goes to this thought of things happen. And as an investor, you've got to be kind of cognizant of the, the construct of the financial markets in the greater world. And his, one of his first books was called The Black Swan. Oh, yes. And The Black Swan shouldn't exist in nature. If you've ever taken the seventh grade genetics course where you go through and find out why certain flowers exist and don't, um, you would you appreciate that, but there are black swans in nature. Events happen that can't be, you know, kind of probabilistically uh, anticipated. And um, so he said, look, black swans exist. Hundred-year floods happen every other year. It seems like so you've got to be you've got to be thoughtful that risk is out there in unintended ways. And then he went on to write a book called uh, Anti-Fragile. And this, this answers the question. And, and uh, I know we might get to it. I'm also uh, one of my kind of, well, I'm involved with the Jesuit Foundation, and I'm trying to espouse this idea. A lot of folks who come on CNBC are going to sit there and they're going to say, okay, here's what's going to happen in the next four or six months. And it's what Wall Street wants them to do. No one can predict the future. Mm-hmm. The Fed has 300 PhDs, and they're always wrong right? It's, it's not a thing. So you don't sit there and you try to predict the future now. What you try to do is build an anti-fragile portfolio, economy, what have you, because you don't know where this black swan is going to come from. You don't know, you don't know what unintended consequences might unwind, whether it's, in, and you could take this to your personal life and some other things, but just in your, fin- in your finances, Someone could get sick. The market could go down. Weird things happen you don't anticipate. So you want to be anti-fragile in the way you go about investing. And I think that particular book, okay, is a mindset that can be really, really helpful to the way that you look at your investments. So, yes, you want to get involved. I suspect many young kids who get involved in the stock market might take a big hit. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> They'll hopefully learn from it and gain from it. But if they want to proceed with some caution and be investors and not speculators, it's more boring maybe. But a long run, it's it's more powerful. Right, yeah. Making money is not boring at the end of the day. So that's a fascinating – so the book is anti-fragile. And it, that's a great statement in, in that I have to do this on the financial planning side. I tell clients we're going to invest the money, but we have to get everything else in place over here. A will, life insurance policies, right? So we got to protect any downside risk that we can't control. Absolutely. So to, to the point of, you're talking about young people, we, we do have an interesting um, dynamic building up. We have people that are 30 now that have never seen a down market, which is amazing to me, right? Maybe they got in the business. Maybe over half the market participants, yeah. professional participants. They got in the market in 2009, and it has been screaming ever since, right? So, and I talked to real estate guys about this. There's a bunch of young real estate brokers out there that, you know, this thing, you know, everyone will pay the piper at some point. So we do tell people, you want to stay invested, but you've got to be incredibly smart right now. You, you and I have been around long enough that cycles – they're just cycles to everything. I mean, the market cannot and will not go up forever. I don't know when, to your point. And I do, the, the, the Wall Street prognosticators drive me crazy because no one can tell me what's going to happen tomorrow. But you just have to build bulletproof portfolios, as we call them. Or we call them risk-based portfolios. Right. Which is we, we build every portfolio to a client's risk tolerance. 
they always think their risk tolerance is higher than it is, which is a struggle <laughs> in my world, right? So I have a new software called Riskalyze, which actually shows them what their risk tolerance really is, and it's very, very helpful. Very helpful. So um, let me add on to that. I try to find things that are a little more pop culture oriented that people will actually watch or read. I would say either the movie or the book, I don't really care. The Big Short is a pretty good education on what can happen. Absolutely. In, in, the, in the movie in particular, that's a one, one scenario where the movie actually may have been better than the book in some ways. I mean, I assume you clearly saw the movie, right? I did. I, I tell you, the, the thing that I don't know that got highlighted in the movie as much as it should, and why I'm such a believer in the independent RA model in many ways, is... Under, you know, the, the, the folks that bet against the housing crisis, mm-hmm. they almost didn't collect on that risk mm-hmm. because the banks were the counterparties, right? <laughs> right, yeah. And uh, I actually had a friend who, or have a friend, uh, quite a bit of money, older gentleman, had all his money at Lehman. Mm. He didn't get it back for six to seven weeks, I want to say. And he's a pretty wealthy guy, so he had a lot of people to pay. Um, that's, that's more of a frightening scenario than what actually kind of took place in the markets in many ways. Oh yeah. And, and so this idea, I'm really wedded to it, um, that you're an independent, uh, advisor. All Mm -hmm. of our partners are independent. They select us or they can fire us. There's no, uh, payments or shenanigans. The custodians are solid. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and so for the end client, there's this wonderful transparency and there's this wonderful objectivity. And um, anyway, it's a l- little bit of a digression. I thought they were both great. Mm-hmm. And I think um, you go back to that time, you know, I'm taking the baton a little bit here, Wayne, but, mm-hmm. you know, there, there, there's been something... What grew out of it was insidious, and it's it's really unfortunate because what could have happened is we could have all taken a step back. We could have cleaned out the the what I would call the malinvestment of uh, the situation and set ourselves on a much uh, healthier footing going forward. Uh, we did quite the opposite. I've heard someone say that Ben Bernanke may go down as the biggest villain of our century, and, and, and in hindsight it might be right. Um, we threw gobs and gobs and gobs of money at it, and uh, it's created all kinds of unintended consequences or black swans. And uh, we don't have a lot of a roadmap, but, but the debt that's been building in an era of negative interest rates has been really extraordinary. And, and, and to your point, Wayne, the business cycle, which is a very healthy thing, mm-hmm. has been seemingly suspended. Um, and maybe this goes on further, but I would argue you, you're, at some point economic reality will take hold. Mm-hmm. And, and so what happens when the, when the business, what business cycles are healthy, because what happens is you have malinvestment, it's an Austrian economics term, but it basically means money's going to the wrong things um, that no reasonable person would invest in. So you get malinvestment, and that creates debt and, and you know, poor pricing. And then... Uh, when the cycle kind of turns, it cleans that out and resets the system. So we've suspended that very, very healthy mm-hmm. process. And uh, that's, that's of, of, to me, a lot of concern. But also, I would tell you, uh, we are very much optimists. I think there's going to be a wonderful buying opportunity mm-hmm. at some point. Uh, I just, I, I'm very hopeful not too many people get hurt. Yeah, so let me let me jump in here. Two things. One, the Bernanke statement makes me think of um, something me and my brother have talked about. Being a good parent is really hard. Being a bad parent is really easy, right? So all they did was effectively kick the proverbial can down the road, and it's still being kicked, which is fascinating, right? Had you let everything play out its natural cycle, it would have been bloody even worse than it was, but it's now we're – we're in a very precipitous situation, which we're going to talk about in a minute. What, what I do want the listeners here, because you aren't saying this, nor am I, it is not time to sell everything and panic either, because it, that doesn't do you any good, because you'll never time the other cycle right. The people that never made their money back were the people that sold everything in 2008. Agreed. Correct? So w- point would be, if you have a good portfolio built, there are times to take profits, but to me, as, as a retail investor for clients or high net worth clients, was always 
really time and dollar cost averaging is how you beat the market. Uh-huh. Right. And dollar cost averaging to anybody listening is just adding money in. So I just don't want to send the signal that people need to go out after our podcast and sell everything. No. And, and I'll reinforce that. I mean, yeah. we, we bet with our wallets. Uh, you know, I mean, we, our strategy, now we've got a lot of cash because right. things are expensive. We got about 33% cash right now, but we own good companies at the right price. Mm-hmm. Now, the current market structure with all the passive investing in ETFs um, might be a little bit more volatile if we get a correction than what mm-hmm. we've experienced in the past. But we take the comfort, look, stock prices go up and down. If you know what you own and you own a good company, that's creating value, right? Return on invested capital is above their cost of capital. And you feel like you've paid a fair price or a good price. You're indifferent. And, and, and that's the beauty of putting together an anti-fragile portfolio. Okay. Can I ask you, just because it's bouncing around in my head, mm-hmm. can you find a stock to buy right now? Well, we, we have. Not We've got 20, we got 20. Well, but you've owned those for quite a while. I mean, we're, we're peaking every day, right? Well, well our, our most recent purchase, which we've done well on, was a, was a gold miner, <laughs> so, right. so, which is a little bit, uh, which is a little bit counter to, yeah. um, we have a number of names on our shopping list that look interesting. So you're looking, okay. Um, so, and just to put in contrast, we, we always have our shopping list, mm-hmm. and I don't want to get too into the portfolio, but uh, last Q3, when the market was high, we had about this much cash, 32%. The market went down and bottomed uh, Christmas mm-hmm. Eve. Uh, our cash came down to about 23%. So when we see compelling yeah, yeah. entry prices, we put the money to work. I've seen it time and time again. Yeah. yeah so yeah. and now we're now the prices go up and uh, they're frothy and it's not a market call. It's stock by stock name. So you know we just bought a little bit more Berkshire. We just bought a little bit more Lowe's, um, which is not Lowe's the Home Depot competitor, but the Lowe's family, which right. is CNA Insurance. And you know we. Um, we we sold some things that got well above where we think fair value resides, mm-hmm. and 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 uh, I know I'm guilty of sidebars, but I think this is helpful back to the value uh, for those who might be listening that are thinking about taking the reins a little bit on on investing or younger people thinking about value investing. Um, I, the evolution of Robert as an investor, and he's an engineer by trade. Because a lot of times you get so caught up in the numbers, and the numbers give you comfort, but fair value is just an estimate. The harder thing to do, but the thing that is more illuminating, is really understanding the underlying company, if it's a stock. Understanding what the business model is and what drives the value of the business model. And this can be applicable to oil and gas, this can be applicable mm-hmm. to real estate, etc. So, sorry for the sidebar, but I think it's a, it's a worthwhile point is younger people are going to want to get caught up in numbers and it's a very important aspect of valuing something but being able to distinguish okay bed bath and beyond's business model is really vulnerable mm-hmm. you know tj maxx maybe not because people want to have the treasure hunt experience so thank you for allowing me to sidetrack yeah this. no no but it's good it goes back here yeah it just just it... I founded this firm, my particular firm, on the simplest two statements: transparency and open architecture investing. Mm-hmm. Right, because everything wants to get so everybody wants to get everything so complicated, especially investing, and it just doesn't have to be that way. And then it scares people, and then they hand it off to somebody because they don't know anything. And you know, be educated. The transparency for you and I both is. You're educated when you know what you're paying everyone, right? Because fees do matter. I, I can't guarantee any returns. But I can guarantee to improve returns with fair fees. And I'm not going to say lower, fair. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Right? When I, when I tear, about, tear apart some of the investments I see from clients, there'll be internal fees of 4% that the client doesn't know about. Now, if, you, if those ter- returns can be justified on that 4%, I can live with it. But, you know, as well as I do, they usually aren't. So I'm going to ask clients to – I'm a client advocate at the end of the day. I, I really am. Um, and I grew up in a different world, so it's been really fun for me to turn. And then we found our firm on faith, integrity, trust, and family, which are important tenets, right? So, because there's still, if you, and I'm gonna, I don't mind saying the name, they can do what they want with it. I mean, if you look at a Wells Fargo, just the, just the entire company, and I just want you to take news headlines over the past 10 years, 
it is flat out it's criminal behavior that, that literally should be prosecuted in a court of law really if you think about some of the behavior and it, it just drives me it, 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 well, I, I mean, I'll give you another example if you I want mean, it, I, and sure. I, I don't want this to be a bash session. Um, the firm's no longer around. This is Lehman Brothers, oh, yeah. and, and one of my uh, good friends from the training program became the COO of Private Wealth, and he would describe the process, and, and I feel like I saw this some when I sat in the seat, and it's not to say there weren't good people doing good things. but There I are. That, There's always good people in a the, tough system. The, yeah. but, but he would describe the process as, okay, we want to earn this fee. What's the product that we can construct to, that's marketable in these conditions mm-hmm. to get that fee? And that always bothered me uh, a little bit uh, at Private Wealth at the big bank because I, I could tell clients what I was making but I couldn't see all the fees behind the veil because we had so many internal products or even mm-hmm. opened architecture. We weren't necessarily transparent with how those fees were working with the outside manager. Um, I, to this day, Robert and I's tenant on fees is we're very consistent. Uh, we love the transparency of the separate account. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't want to look at one partner and they have a different fee than another partner because they're a squeaky wheel or what have you. Mm-hmm. So um, I look, I, I, I think if fees are, are fair and forth, forthright, mm-hmm. they should never be an issue. So let's um, progress. And I'm going to go a little longer in the world today because this is just too good. And it, it I, you, the hard thing is you and I eat this stuff up. Some of the listeners maybe. I, 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 I know. I, uh, I, so what, what do you feel? Because it's important to me. And I'm going to make a couple statements, you know, because I tell clients, you made this money once. I don't want you to have to make it again. Mm-hmm. Rule number one is don't lose money. Rule number two is to remember rule number one, Warren Buffett, clearly. Now, we don't live in a vacuum, so those statements. But but it really is important, the first statement, which is you made the money once. I don't want you to have to make it again in the sense of either you worked really hard to make this money or somebody did and you inherited it. I mean, there's really two scenarios, right? right. So you need to protect that. But what are we on the precipice of? And I'm not asking you tomorrow, but what are we on the precipice of potentially? So, again, uh, I want to distance myself from prognosticating, as right, I said. Yeah. Because, I, frankly, uh, Rob and I look at each other. I mean, we never, in 2009, we never would have guessed this would go on QE and negative mm-hmm. rates as long. And it's such a perversion. Um, but Quantitative it, easing, quantitative by the way, which easing. is the Fed loan rate, simply, right. and and, so people can follow. And us. right now, just to give it magnitude, there's $16 trillion of negative yielding debt in the world. And and I'm still looking for the banker that's going to give me a loan at negative at a negative rate so I can be paid. I know. I might have to refinance my house again, <laughs> even though it's like Did 3%. they not do that at Benchmark? No. I, <laughs> yeah, well, no. They do not. But, um, but so, uh, you know, you've created – these extraordinary imbalances. And there's really kind of two things. I, I never knew where the black swan might come from because things are fragile, just to keep the nomenclature saying. But there's two things kind of emerging that I think are really uh, interesting or cautionary. The first is the European banks are really hitting some critical levels. And if you go back to 08, part of the contagion was this there's uh, trillions in counterparty risk between the big banks of the world. And one of the things that, quote-unquote, saved the system in 0809 was an accounting rule that said to the banks, you don't need to – you need to disclose it with a footnote. It doesn't need to feed into your balance sheet, essentially. Um, I don't know how problematic that could be, but I will tell you in 2011, the, the Q3 of 2011, the S&P was down 14.5% because it looked like a European bank might roll. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Mario Draghi, who was chairman of the ECB, said whatever it takes, and they threw money at the situation, it went away, and the market kept going up. That's one. The other thing that's very much in our mind, the construction of this market right now, 60% of the volume is passive investing, and another 20% is algos. And if you think about... <laughs> Algorithms. Algorithms, just computers that are trading around us faster than you can blink an eye. So the real investors are hard to find because there's nothing wrong with people indexing. In fact, I would tell you if you've got an active manager that looks a lot like an index, save the money and go Mm -hmm. into an index. The problem is the indexes 
like the S&P 500 is extraordinarily high by a variety of measures. And don't take forward PE because that's really a shorthand that doesn't work. But if you look at well, uh, what percentage of the Fang stocks are? Well, well that's, that's that's a whole other thing. That, that's right? a whole other thing. But I'm Facebook, just, Amazon, Netflix, I, and Google. Right, but I'm just taking the whole index. It's right. incredibly expensive by some very reliable long-term indicators. Right. So it occurs to me when you kind of intersect that with demographics, you've got older folks. They if they own a lot of the index, which a lot of firms love to do, because that keeps the advisor from having to really own it. And it's just, hey, here's what happens. Uh, they're very sensitive to price action and have no sense for value, right? Mm -hmm. So the price goes down, they sell. At some point, they panic sell. And, uh, and, and you know, I think that's going to be an immense opportunity for us. But we haven't had a market constructed in this particular manner. Um, so it's a little bit, it's a little bit of an unknown. Um, so I, I, I see a couple things, I guess the third leg of the stool and some folks that we really follow talk a lot about this right now, triple B debt corporate. So what's been happening in low interest rates, companies have been borrowing money cheaply and buying back their stock. <coughs> They haven't really been investing. It's been, it's been one of the horrible things about perversion. They're just buying back their stocks. And so corporate debt has exploded. Um, right now, triple B, there's $3 trillion of triple B, a trillion of which is just five companies, uh, Ford GM, Dell, GE, and AT&T. If that spills into double B, which is junk grade, mm -hmm. that will double the size of the junk market that becomes very, very problematic, very problematic. So there's these scenarios that we have our eye on. I won't try to predict, mm -hmm. but I point out as a couple of bullets, there are times in the, as an investor to be bold, and there are times to maybe be cautious. This might be a time to be cautious, but if policymakers decide to bring us to zero rates in the United States, maybe I'm saying that prematurely by a couple I just don't know. Well, I've been saying it prematurely for a long time. So that's why I, I have, have to, to. re-educate my people, which is I'm not making car market calls, but we've been cautious for five years. Well, let me get wrong. But, but then again, yeah. maybe there's a case for always being cautious. You know, oh. you know, right, always. So that, once again, to if I just live with, you made the money once, I want you to make it again. Really, don't lose money. Even in downturns, upturns, I'm just living by that rationale. Right. Well, I think it's very. Because if you compound somebody's portfolio at five percent, right, that's a lot better than going down twenty-seven, up twenty-two, down. You know, it's the it's the power of compounded interest or the the Markowitz principle. If you have two portfolios, the one with the low, with the lower volatility will give you a greater rate of return over time. I said that really fast, but if you have two portfolios, the one with lower volatility will give you a greater compounded rate of return over time. Absolutely, because drawdowns drawdowns are. Horrible. Which isn't rocket science, by the way. No, but it's our human biases, <clears throat> recency bias keeps us from appreciating. I mean, if you had money in 2007, you didn't get back to even to 2013. That's, that's, that's pretty dry period of time. So as we said, we're going to segue here in a minute. This whole okay. thing, I had lunch with a guy three years ago, and big real estate investor, and he said, I'm pulling everything off the table, and it's the seventh inning, and... Yeah, I've, been, I've lived through a lot of cycles. I'm gonna. And he's made a lot of money. I'm gonna. I'm gonna keep my money this time. And so we had lunch about two months ago, and he just poured money into a massive development product. And uh, and I said, so how do you feel? He said, you know, I just I feel like we're in the seventh inning. I said, no, 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 wait a second. We had that conversation two years ago. He said, well, well, I know, but you know, this is it, and it's just. It's the it's human nature difficult because everyone goes back to the trough effectively and I don't know it'll be interesting none of us know none none, none of us know uh, certainly like you we've been surprised how policymakers have maybe controlled the market and again I don't think you need to be binary mm -hmm. all in all out I think you have good assets that you understand. Uh, you have a diversified portfolio mm -hmm. that uh, reacts well in a number of different scenarios. That, over the long term, is going to be vastly superior than any timing. Time. Right, and, 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 and there are just so people aren't 
because you and I have to be careful of this, getting, you know, leaving this podcast, you know, <laughs> panicking. I mean, there are good spots to the U.S. economy, right, if you look at unemployment and various other things, right? So, and, and I will say most listeners are here. Um, North Texas is, you, is a unique place to that. Mm-hmm. So that's a whole other thing that I have to take the rose-colored glasses off my client's eyes because everywhere in America or the world doesn't look like this. You don't have 20,000 jobs coming to the northwest corner of Legacy and the Tollway in most towns. Right, so it's I can't a, think of a better place in the United States to be right now. Right, I mean, seriously, it's it's fascinating. So, let's um let's just move on a little bit. What you know, a few questions. Um, you know, you said it earlier, and, and you can't answer this from from an investing standpoint. And you've lived, you've done very well, clearly, with how you've managed your money. And you know, what from if you looked at yourself at seventeen, what would you say? Well, I think it, I jumped ahead on this. Yeah, right, but. Uh, but it's important for listeners to hear again. Because it's, you know, I mean, uh, it's, it's always fun to go back. And, and Lord knows I've made probably more mistakes than, than most. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, just putting a little bit away mm-hmm. to save and starting the compounding process, mm-hmm. um, that, that, could be, uh, that can be really profound to someone's, to someone's life. Not only from all, you know, just just how powerful compounding itself is. But the habit of maybe living below your means, uh, the habit of putting a little bit away, um, you know, financial security is just a wonderful, wonderful thing to have in life. And, and frankly, the fact that I jumped out of Goldman and I had little kids and I tried some entrepreneurial things that sucked up my savings, um, I, I wouldn't change that. Uh, in so, the world, but that's but, a great point. There are but, risks I, but, but, that was, but that was tough. That yeah. was that was. I mean, I'm looking at my little kids, and and most people said, thought I was crazy, and and looking back, maybe I was because I left behind a terrific uh, partner, uh, partner at Goldman. I left behind uh, a terrific business, and I went from making more than frankly I ever thought I'd make to a donut. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, it was kind of hey, I I just had the uh, itch and restlessness. So. I've been there in terms of having mm-hmm. no money. Uh, I've, you know, I kind of, uh, my parents were very generous paying for my undergrad, but I took the baton from there. And, um, you know, creating, creating that for myself, being able to put it away and build these things has been really, really fulfilling. Yeah. It's, um, it, to your original statement, to the, the, the paying off a credit card debt. Somebody asked me, I have clients come in, and they have a fair amount of money, but yet they still have debt of some sort just because they don't care, they don't think about it. And, and then I do get some younger clients that carry around what I call unsecured debt. So I always say, oh, I, I, can, get you, I can get you a guaranteed 8% return, maybe even 25 if you'll just pay that credit card down. Right? I mean, that return is It's a no-brainer. Right? It's a no-brainer. So... Um, you know, leverage in debt, and there may be a place for it, but it's a dangerous thing, right? I'm not a big fan of unsecured debt at all. I mean, I even pay cash for my cars, so which I don't want to get in that debate because people go crazy. But that's a whole other thing. Um, and I don't. <laughs> you, buy, you and I have a lot of. I don't common... buy new cars either, but that's another thing. So, so let's um, we'll, we'll close it here shortly because we're going to reach our uh, listeners, you know, brain capacity. So what, you know, I love to do this, which is. The fast five, which is faith, family, friends, finances, and fitness. Um, even though you know everybody plays in different areas of those, but there is no wrong or right answer here. It is, you know, what just is. It's, it can be a word or a sentence. And if you if you if you drift a little bit, that's fine. I, too. I, I might, as you as you're seeing, I might drift. Yeah. Uh, so I'll do my best to be. Yeah, concise. that's fine. So because I don't want to hold people to one word, because I did it to myself in my last episode, and I realized how hard that was. So let's go through the fast five. Faith. Uh, Spiritual. All right, family. Uh, really a terrific foundation. Uh, you know, I've known my wife since college. Um, we've had a terrific marriage. Uh, two great kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, my son's about to start sophomore year at SMU, and my daughter's a senior with, with your daughter. So uh, it's, it's actually pretty exciting because we'll be empty nesters, so it's a new phase for us. That's great. Friends? Uh, you know, Preparing for this podcast, I was thinking about this, and I'm really blessed in this arena because I've got solid friends from almost every milestone journey in my life. Mm-hmm. High school, college, grad school, 
the Goldman training program. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a varied group of people, our community. And, uh, and I really celebrate that. Fitness. Uh, one of the things I, I don't know that I've got the wherewithal to make it to the gym. Mm -hmm. Uh, actually, uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays, and I'm really militant about making this. I meet with a group of guys at uh, Carruth Park. I've been there. Trainer. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah. let me tell you, it, it's far more than just the fitness. Uh, these guys are confidants. We uh, enjoy each other's company. Uh, something's going on. We kind of tell each other about it. It's, in fact, one of my good friends who does it regularly sold his company and, and he gave us all kind of a hug because we were, when we didn't realize we were that important to the, this, the 12 month process we went through. Right. Yeah. So, I get, I get a lot more out of it than just staying in fit. But to your point, man, if your health goes, it's what do you have? E e what do you have? And in fact, someone, someone recently said, uh, you know, if, if you could take exercise, put it in a pill, you could charge whatever you want for it. I'm, I'm a big believer. In that. Well, people are paying those for those pills anyway, and they aren't working. Yeah. Uh, finances? Uh, well, I think we covered a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to, I don't think there's much more to go on, but I, I, I'll say it again. I'm, I'm blessed in that regard, and it's not the stuff you can buy. Mm. Uh, although it can be the stuff you can do, can be can be pretty extraordinary, um, and uh, and just the, the comfort of uh, having had some success in my life is irreplaceable. Yeah, and I, I'd be remiss, and thank you for those five S. I'd be remiss if I didn't say uh, the Millionaire Next Door. Read, that's a very good book. It's on, a great starting book. I mean, it's 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 actually fun. And yep. it's very basic on what that would look like. So I always want to give my guests an opportunity. Where, where, if somebody wanted to learn about St. James, is it? Is your, of course I know where to find you. But your, is your, is the newsletter that I get to read visible to the public? It, it is. It's actually. So tell them, send them to your website, and yeah, it's, it's tell them what would be worth reading or looking at. So and not just to learn about you, because it's not a plug about just investing. And I think your newsletter is a good spot. Well, thank you. You know, uh, we we take a lot of pride in our new. Robert's been writing this newsletter mm. since the inception of St. James, and he writes it. It's not a St. James commercial. We rarely, if ever, even talk about any of our portfolio positions, so it's very different than most asset managers. Um, it's basically there's a Wall Street Journal writer called Jason Zwig says he writes he's saying the same thing over and over in a different way. Mm -hmm. And it's typically about six to eight pages on value investing and, and a little bit of commentary on what's going on in the world. We put it right on the homepage of our, uh, of our website, which is uh, for St. James, stjic.com. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually gave uh, a couple copies to my son and a few of his friends. They enjoyed it. Um, we very much uh, take a lot of pride uh, in that. And in fact, right now, I think our mailing list on it is in the thousands. Um, so, you know, if you're interested, you could even drop me uh, an email and I'll put you on the mailing list. But it's always on our homepage. Okay, people, you, uh, you know where to find us. That is Larry Riddell. Awesome time. Uh, I yeah, love, thank you, Wayne. This yeah. Is, this is terrific. So we have show notes. A lot will be in there in the show notes, people. If you want to find Larry, find me. Y'all know where to get me. Once again, thank you for the time. And may God bless you.